Welcome to the Healing Our Sight podcast, where we discuss vision issues and healing strategies from the patient perspective. The goal of this podcast is to create an awareness of the diverse types of vision issues people experience, to highlight the types of help available, and to open a dialogue between patients to show we're not alone in our vision struggles. In this episode, I'm speaking with Colin Cushion, Director of Business Development at Vivid Vision. For those who are not familiar with Vivid Vision, it's a virtual reality software used in vision therapy. I was able to use it toward the end of my vision therapy work, and it was very exciting. Colin shares some of her vast knowledge of vision therapy resources and her thoughts on seeing the big picture with regards to results. I'm linking the resources she mentions in the show notes below this podcast, and I hope you enjoy. Your feedback is welcome and appreciated. Here's this month's episode. Today, I'm speaking with Kalyn Cushion, who is currently the Director of Business Development with Vivid Vision, and she was formerly the Executive Director of the Optometric Extension Program Foundation. That's where I met her, actually. She has a certificate in nonprofit management, a master's degree in English, and a bachelor's degree in English, art, and history. She has worked in numerous medical settings, including her father's optometry practice in Cincinnati, Ohio. So welcome, Colleen. Thank you so much, Denise. I'm really excited to be here. Um, I'm so glad you're here with me. So can you tell us a little bit about your unique background and how you got involved in the field of optometry and specifically vision therapy? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, I I worked in my father's optometry practice, but just saying I worked there doesn't really convey the level of exposure I had to vision therapy and really to behavioral optometry and that philosophy or, or model of vision. So first of all, just background, my father runs a private practice in Cincinnati, Ohio. He has for over 40 years. My mother was the vision therapist in the practice until just recently. It's a a family practice. The only other employees have been family members, my aunt, my sister, myself. As a child, I went to the office with my parents. So after school, I was there. On Saturdays, I went there. So I grew up at the office, uh, very much a part of our family. As I got older, I helped in the therapy room. I should explain here, my father's vision therapy is done in a group style format, which is not necessarily the norm. I think most patients are probably familiar with more of like a one-on-one with a therapist type of scenario. So my dad's format is basically five to six children of any age, any diagnoses, any abilities. So we had teenagers, five-year-olds, children with ADHD. We had patients with Down syndrome, patients with cerebral palsy, uh, patients who were tremendous athletes, patients who were shy, patients who were loud, nonverbal, you name it. They were all intermingled and and participating in in this group therapy. So I often participated as a group member. I did vision therapy like daily. I was just there and it it was fun. It wasn't like it was prescribed. It was just what I did. So I got to experience things as a patient alongside these other patients, but I also experienced it as a therapist too. 
So I was very familiar with vision therapy procedure, like instruction sets, the equipment, the tools. I was completely immersed in it, but not in like an institutionalized education type of way. Um, It was much more experiential. So I just soaked it in naturally. My parents took me with them to optometry conferences. I often made appearances at study group weekends that my dad hosted in his office or that he attended at other colleagues. Some of his colleagues are best family friends. We go to the lake for holiday weekends. We celebrated holidays together. So it wasn't just that this was my mom and dad's occupation. It was really a part of my life and is still very much like a part of my identity. Um, So I'm not an optometrist. um, I'm not a vision therapist, but I've been very intimately involved from a very young age. Sounds like it was really (laughs) just your life. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's awesome. So as we're talking about the struggles that people have, and, and you've seen all of that firsthand, obviously, And we've talked about different struggles people have that bring them into the office, like driving or playing sports, those kinds of things. What are some of the lesser known things that you would see that would bring people into the office? So I guess when you say lesser known, among the general public, some of the things that brought people into the office are very common reasons to be in that office, but among the general population, they wouldn't be common. So if a child is having problems, learning related vision problems, for example, the general population who doesn't have any knowledge of vision therapy might think, oh, I I wouldn't have thought to take my child to an optometrist for help with the problems my child's having in the classroom. But that is a bulk of the patients who are being seen in a vision therapy practice. I did mention as well in my father's practice, he saw a lot of patients, children with special needs. So you might not think that a vision therapy program is the place for a nonverbal or very um, motor compromised individual, maybe with Down syndrome, cerebral palsy, other things like that, um, stroke patients, et cetera. But it is, it, it is absolutely a wonderful place for those patients to thrive and to, and to realize some very wonderful gains um, visually as well as just performance-wise. Because a lot of that is tied into how they are seeing things, right? Yeah. So the primary purpose of your visual process, of your vision, is, is to direct your action, to, to direct your performance. So that means the way you do your schoolwork, you, the way you do your, your work at the office, on, on the athletic field. But it also means how you navigate a room with crowded, you know, lots of people or objects, how you get through a department store with lots of clothing racks, how you navigate merging onto a highway and other cars all around you. And those are things that people don't as easily think about when they think about vision. They think about being able to see the board, acuity aspects, uh, an eye being straight or turned, things like that. But they don't think about 
how they organize the space around them, how they move through space um, as being necessarily visual. Right. And so what kinds of things should we be watching for? If we're watching a child, for instance. Yeah. So a child with visual difficulties, uh, often binocular vision problems, they might just come across as a bit clumsy, um, which sometimes can just be chalked up to, oh, age, they're young, they're still getting their coordination together and things like that. But that'll often continue to be an issue. Children who can't ride their bike at an age-appropriate point, those are some balance issues, visual vestibular issues that might be present. I think, too, anything related to avoidance of doing homework or classwork, they might not be able to explain to you that reading is difficult, it's bothering me. What you're going to see in the child instead is avoidance, meltdowns. They're going to complain about it, resist doing it. You might see some tantrums, some outbursts, things like that. Um, I've had patients who would hide in the bathroom during math class. That's, That's very common. So if they're avoiding or if they're throwing fits, it could possibly have a visual component there. Okay. I don't think parents think about it that way at all. No, (laughs) it's difficult. I mean, because there are a lot of things that have similar symptoms, especially in today's age when we talk so frequently about attention deficit issues and, and being on the spectrum and things like that. Yeah, there's a lot of similar, if you want to call them symptoms. So it is difficult. Yeah, definitely. What would you say would be some of the more common misconceptions about vision therapy? About vision therapy or about vision? Well, would you like to address vision rather than vision therapy? (laughs) Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I can probably get to both of them in the same answer problems. Okay. So a common misperception about vision, I think overall vision is, is in a way it's pretty ineffable. It's hard to describe what your visual experience is to somebody else. And it's hard for me to understand somebody else's visual experience. So how does somebody who doesn't see in 3D describe what that's like to somebody who does and vice versa? Um, How do you communicate to your toddler what's normal as far as vision goes? How do you even interview your toddler to find out if they're seeing normally? So I think there's a lot of very simplistic kind of metaphors and analogies and explanations used to describe vision overall that unfortunately do not give the whole picture, the the robustness that vision really is. So like camera models, you, you often hear that vision's like a camera, your eye is like a camera. Um, or that your eyes are responsible for like recording your visual space. Um, and I, I think it, it's much more interactive. Um, your vision is creating your space, not just recording it. And because we use such simplistic kind of 
language to communicate about vision, it limits us. It limits our understanding of just how pervasive the visual process is in human behavior. It limits us in treatment modalities, the suggestions we make to patients to get help, um, I think are all very stuck in a simplistic kind of mode. I definitely agree with that. How does that play into what we feel is possible for our vision? So I think, again, to get to that, we, we kind of think that simplistic model, right? And, and maybe we're just thinking about, uh, it's a very common phrase, you know, vision is m- more than 2020. So that, that's like an acuity-based model. Or we, we think of just cosmetic alignment of the eyes. Mm-hmm. So if we are stuck in just those simplistic models, we don't see all of the ways that vision is impacting our performance and what we're doing. So we don't see all the benefits that we could reap from something like vision therapy or a certain uh, lens prescription. A lot of times they go hand in hand. It's vision therapy and very specific prescription lenses that go along with that. They work together. So we don't see that there's there are all these other options. You know, the simplistic model says these eye muscles control your eye. We will readjust them. Your eye will then be aligned and you'll be good to go. Right. But <laughs> I'm still having problems in all of these other performance ways, all these other performance areas or new problems. So yeah, that, that's difficult. It's difficult to, to convey that to people that there's so much potential. There's so much room for improvement because they don't see it as a visual issue um, or they, they see very few options. I think also we're told that that's not something we can change. Yeah. I've talked to so many people who, and myself, I've also experienced it. When you go to the optometrist, they say your eyes are fine or they say there's nothing else we can do. And so that limits what we think is possible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What do you wish people knew when they're getting into the whole process of exploring what, what their vision could look like? So for people exploring options and what can be done, absolutely vision therapy needs to be a consideration. And what I, what I wish people maybe knew is that for people doing vision therapy, we expect them, there's, there's research supporting uh, that vision therapy will result in improvement in their optometric findings. Okay, so you will expect that maybe that's visual acuity, maybe that's stereo acuity, maybe it's vergence ranges, other things. But we expect that optometric findings that you would have an exam will improve. That's one aspect. But oftentimes, parents, patients themselves, pediatricians, educators, other people that interact with the patient, they overlook all the other aspects that may also be improved through vision therapy. So 
I have firsthand experience working with patients, watching patients, you'll have a child who is shy and quiet, a wallflower, lacking confidence, and they'll go through a vision therapy program and they'll blossom into this wonderfully chatty, social, personable child. I've had parents just say, I I got my son back or I got my daughter back. Mm -hmm. Um, she She was just gone before. So keep in mind, like what your expectations are going in and don't just be stuck on some of the optometric, maybe the findings or, or I want the eye to be straight or I want to that amblyopic eye to be, you know, 2020 or even with the other eye or things like that. That is one, that is only one aspect because a lot of times in the, in the patient success stories I hear and the patients I've interacted with and, or parents, like I said, It's all the other things that really means a lot to them that they can better see the emotion conveyed on people's faces now because they have depth perception and they can see those nuanced features. Mm -hmm. I've had patients just emotionally sharing with me that it's brought them closer to their partner, that they can just see that emotion on their faces. And that's, that's life changing. And people don't think about that when I mean, when you're facing a medical decision, okay, do I, do I have enough money to do this vision therapy program? Do I consider surgery? Uh, You know, could my child go blind if I don't do this now, those sort of things, these kind of things can be lost. And, And I think that these are the things that are really important. I, I would agree with that. Definitely. That's awesome. Thank you for sharing that. What would you say is the most important component in whether a patient is successful or not in their quest for stereopsis or at least, you know, gaining a more stable type of vision? I think being flexible, which some of these patients might already have difficulty being flexible Mm-hmm. But being flexible with your expectations is probably up there pretty high. You know, I, I've known a, a couple of patients, for example, that had very significant eye turns. And I completely understand that there's a cosmetic need there. They, they just want that eye to be straight. They don't want to, to be made fun of. They don't want to look the way they do it in photographs and those sort of things. And yes, they're probably also experiencing other things that bother them, symptoms, headaches, or double vision at times, visual confusion, those sort of elements. There may be a limit um, to how much progress you can make. You know, you might not achieve if it's a case of amblyopia, you might not achieve the acuity that maybe you've set in your mind that you want to achieve. But if you're not open to recognize the other changes that are going on, you might be, you might end up disappointed. You might cut yourself short. You might stop before some other things are, are realized. Again, you know, I, in my dad's office working with some patients that were very challenged. Again, you know, they're nonverbal. They're not even most of the times, maybe even walking and things like that. 
you might think, oh, well, there's no room for improvement there. It's not like you're going to cure that person's Down syndrome or cerebral palsy. That's, that's not what we're doing. But there is actually a great deal of independence, right, in being able to know where you are in space. Mm-hmm. You have a control over yourself. It's a form of independence. You, you can still navigate space. You can still plan what's going to happen around you. You're not just a reactive body that, the, that life is happening to. So yeah, so I think being responsible, having those conversations with your optometrist and your vision therapist, what is realistic? Are there points where I might plateau? What happens when I get in a stressful situation, I might regress when we might be able to see that and preempt some things. Right. I think that's a really good point. Yeah. And I actually found that with my own journey where I had to finally decide that it was okay for me to actually have surgery mm-hmm. to get the result that I wanted. Yeah. 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 And, and I mean, especially, you know, adults, I think we're a little bit, I mean, maybe this isn't fair. Kids are pretty aware, but you kind of get aware of what you can't do. I don't know. Maybe that's just me <laughs> projecting onto the situation, but it's like, you know, I want to be able to do X. And if I don't do X, I'm a failure. Maybe that's not true. Maybe you're being too hard on yourself. You know, look at, look at the things that you are achieving that maybe you're not seeing because you're too focused on X. Well, and for me, it was, it had to look a different way than I thought. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's a to get to you know, the success might look different than you thought it did going. Yeah, going in. Definitely. And you know, I I love all your comments. They've they've been so helpful. You know a lot about vision therapy throughout the whole world, not just in your dad's optometry office though, right? Because of working with uh the optometric extension program and is that the reason that you know about optometry worldwide or there how is it that you know so much about vision therapy around the world yeah my my first international trip when I was probably 14 or 15 was to Denmark with my mom and dad for an optometry conference so some of it is because of that I attended international optometry conferences that were maybe here in the U.S. as well so Some of it started then. I, I made these acquaintances with my dad's colleagues at a young age and maintained them. And then also through my work at OEP. OEP is an international organization um, responsible for providing excellent continuing education to optometrists in the area of vision therapy, behavioral optometry. So OEP works with similar organizations around the world. Um, so we would oftentimes host courses and, and conferences in other countries and in conjunction with our partner organizations in those countries. And I just, as a person, I love to travel. I travel a lot and you tend to just bump into <laughs> optometric people when you travel. I've been in the middle of the Australian outback and run into a family who did vision therapy in remote Ontario, Canada, and they thought, oh, do you know our optometrist? And lo and behold, I did. You know, just, <laughs> that just happened. <laughs> Amazing. 
So share with us a couple of those resources, because I know that some of the people that are going to listen will be from different parts of the world. And I tend to share just what I know with the United States. And Yeah, absolutely. I think there does tend to be a U.S.-centric view. The, the vision therapy in the United States is probably the most it's the most mature vision therapy profession, you know, in the U.S. Um, but it's definitely uh, an international thing. There are vision therapy providers all around the world. There are unfortunately pockets of places that don't have providers. We're all of us are working hard to get more providers and help more patients. But in the U.K. specifically, there's an organization called the British Association. For behavioral optometry, and that's www.babo.co.uk. And that website, if you're looking for a vision therapy provider in the UK, you can go to their website and they have a find a doc. Um, they also have other resources, you know, some great checklists, visual symptoms, signs that, you know, vision therapy might be right for you. In Australia, there's a similar organization, the Austral Asian College of Behavioral Optometry. So that also covers New Zealand and uh, some of the Asian Pacific areas. And that's www.acbo.org.au. And again, they also have resources. There is also a Facebook group for Australia patients and parents. And I don't know the full name off the top of my head, but it's something like Australian behavioral optometry. You can search and find it pretty easily. Uh It's not as active as Vision Therapy Parents Unite, um, but it's a little more Australian centric. And then also for Canada, there's Vision Therapy Canada. And that's just www.visiontherapycanada.com. All of the doctors who are listed on that site are verified to be providing vision therapy. So their list is very active, very current. For Spanish-speaking individuals, there's an organization in Mexico called COMOF. And you can just Google COMOF, A-C-C-O-M-O-F. And that will link you to providers within Mexico and a little bit of Latin America, but mostly Mexico. And then in Spain, there's an organization called SIODEC, S-I-O-D-E-C. And if you just Google SIODEC Optometria, um, you'll find that, again, they have a provider locator. There are many providers throughout Spain. Um, And then the standard, uh, I think the more frequently heard ones, U.S.-centric would be OEP, which is OEPF.org, and COVD, COVD COVD.org. Those are international organizations, but again, sometimes regional, it's easier to find people who actually know your geography, and and it just searches a little bit better. Yeah, lots of resources. That that is a lot of resources. I didn't know about most of those, so that's great. I will write all these in the in the notes for people. Awesome. That's that helpful. Link to those easily. Tell us a little bit now also about Vivid Vision and how that works. 
because I know you're so involved in that as your regular job now. Yeah, of course. My passion is really spreading awareness and getting more patients the help that they need and deserve. And I work for a company that that still allows me to do that. And I'm still so fulfilled. We do a lot of patient-facing efforts. So the Vivid Vision website has a success stories page, and those aren't just Vivid Vision patient success stories. Those are vision therapy patient success stories, adults and children of all all types of diagnoses. Um, I love to work on those types of things. We do a lot of just information. You know, our, our page gets a lot of traffic. So we want the information on our page to be driving people to more vision therapy providers. So we also have a provider page and information pages about vision therapy. But Vivid Vision uh, is a virtual reality software. It's used in conjunction with vision therapy. So it's usually part of a vision therapy program. And it's for the treatment of strabismus, amblyopia, and convergence disorders. And we do have a home therapy option, and it's available through your optometrist, again, because it's part of your vision therapy program. So you get that through your optometrist. We don't sell to patients directly. You know, this type of therapy and stuff needs to be overseen by an optometrist who can monitor and make changes that will be beneficial to you. So, Okay. So are there any types of therapy that actually people can do without going to their optometrist? Or <laughs> is there danger in doing that? You know, there are, you know, this, I think this is one of those questions that, that at times people get concerned about or, or get a little bit controversial feeling. There are things that you can do that will impact your visual performance Mm -hmm. on your own. It doesn't mean that you're going to understand necessarily the impact you're having. You know, Vivid Vision, the company I work for, our CEO, he was an amblyope. He is an amblyope. As a child, he did vision therapy. He He's a gamer. He was into software development. He started working on some things and noticed, I'm seeing some visual changes here in what I'm doing. Okay. Let me play with this. Yeah, I'm getting some 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 changes here. Let me now consult with some optometrists, some vision scientists to get them on board and find out what's really going on and what can we do. So so yes, there's some stuff you can do. It doesn't mean that you're doing maybe the right activity for your situation. It doesn't mean what you're doing will help long term. So if you're looking to like sidestep the cost of therapy or or things like that, like I do empathize. I I know things can be very, very expensive, but there is nothing like actually doing it right. And having that person that can guide you, that has all of the expertise and the knowledge, most of these optometrists and vision therapists alike have dedicated not only their medical degree, you know, time in in school, but continuing education, hundreds, thousands of hours. They've seen, they've seen so many things. Their expertise is truly invaluable. So 
right. yeah, do seek out, <laughs> do seek out help. And you know, the thing about it, to be fair, they might start you out as look, here's some stuff you can do at home. Right. Maybe it won't create a cure for you or the full results that you want, but let's get you started. Let's prime the system, come back for checks. You know, for the yeah. most part, they'll work with you and, and figure out a plan of action. Yeah, I think that's what I've heard on a lot of stories that I've listened to. You know, sometimes people like I, I did too, start to do things on their own and then realize I really need I, I really need a coach. You know, it's like teaching anything. you need a coach. Yeah. The other thing about it is such an important element of vision therapy is the lenses Okay, and that is something that falls under that professional regulatory. <laughs> I mean, that is optometry, the, the, the use of prisms and lenses and those sorts of things. That is optometry. It's, it's optics. It's, it's something an optometrist needs to do. It is a very powerful part of vision therapy. So again, it needs to be in there and, and you can't really get that without an optometrist. So, yeah. So when you're doing the vivid vision program, how is it different from just a gaming program? That's virtual reality. Cause I've talked to people who do <laughs> games, you know, and I'm just, I'm wondering how that, how they're different. Yeah. So, you know, while our software developers do come from other major commercial gaming entities, the thing you have to understand about Vivid Vision, we are not developing a game or a scenario that tries to mess with your visual system at all. Like the commercial games, you think of some of like the roller coasters and things, those are trying to take advantage of that visual vestibular disconnect and really make you feel it. We, on the other hand, <laughs> are trying to create a stable safe environment that the patient can operate within space that wasn't feasible before, right? But safely. So we have a lot of grounding features. We have features built in that the, the provider or the therapist can turn certain things on or off to make it a more stable environment for you. Uh, for traumatic brain injury patients, for example, we can take away some of the elements so it's not as visually disturbing. And we have, you know, you can do it seated and things like that to make it more safe and stable and therapeutic. <laughs> That's cool. And, you know, we kind of touched on this a little bit with the uh, previous answer when, where you mentioned that there are success stories on the Vivid Vision page. Are there other places where people can find success stories? I feel like we hear all the negative stuff. We hear, we go on Facebook, everyone's frustrated. They're looking for answers, you know, and people that have success don't usually go on there and, and tell their story, like in any detail. Yeah, I think you are right. Uh, we all, we all need to, to kind of shout from the rooftops, the success stories, I think, you know, Melissa Daniels, and I don't have her website off the top of my head. But she's a patient that's currently very public about her VT journey. She's sharing on Instagram. She's sharing a blog. Um, and that's a good one to follow. You know, Vision Therapy Parents Unite does share some success stories. 
There are a few doctors who share quite a number of success stories on their own websites. Wow Vision in um, Michigan does a nice job of, they have some like video interviews with patients that are very informative and well-produced, well done. You could probably just Google Wow Vision Therapy Michigan. I, they have a YouTube channel as well. There's also books, obviously, Jillian's Story. I know you had them on your podcast earlier. Is a great, great success story about Jillian, but then they wrote Dear Jillian, which is a compilation of many success stories, which is also very inspirational just for the wide range of cases that it covers. Adults, traumatic brain injury, children. There's a great one in that the patient was a pediatrician Mm -hmm. and her son, I'm not quite sure if he was an amblyope. He might've been, he might've had strabismus, um, but he was struggling Um, and being a pediatrician, you know, she asked some colleagues and she, she, her background, she readily admits, you know, they said vision therapy is not going to help. Vision therapy doesn't work. You know, that's not an option. But she found a colleague who who said you should check it out. And she did find a vision therapy provider for her son. Her son was, I think, about six or seven years old. And he was struggling to the point that he asked her for a gun. Oh, no. It was absolutely heartbreaking. And she got him in vision therapy. Again, lenses were a major part of his success as well. And she was one of the parents that said, you know, I have my child back. This didn't change his life. It saved his life. Yeah. He, he can ride a bike now. He can play baseball. He can do what his friends are doing. And that was just so powerful. I mean, to, to be suicidal at six or seven right. is heart-wrenching. You know, and it was inspiring as a pediatrician, you know, she shared in school, we get a few hours of dedicated education about eyes. Mm -hmm. It's general anatomy type stuff, disease type stuff, screen, screen it and refer it. Sure. And she said, I, I don't have the knowledge to know if vision therapy will or won't help a patient in my, you know, in her pediatrician, it's not in her wheelhouse. And she admitted that. And that was, that's a great story. And that's included in that Dear Jillian book. Yeah. And I think that that's the case often that doctors don't have enough knowledge of what to look for, to know who who to refer where. Yeah. And you know, that's, that's the unfortunate thing is that, I mean, fortunate, (laughs) fortunate and unfortunate. Um, There has been a tremendous amount of research in about the past two decades, 20 years or so, Mm -hmm. that really does substantiate a lot of the work that vision therapy is doing. You know, a landmark one is the CITT study, and that specifically covers convergence insufficiency issues. 
but because of the technological advances across the board over the past, like I said, about 20 years, fMRI and, and various technological advances, researchers have been able to study what is actually happening in the brain, the actual messages that go between like the extraocular muscles and the brain to communicate like where the eye should point. Okay. You think about another researcher is Dennis Levi, and he works with a number of colleagues and his work in the area of neuroplasticity and as it relates to amblyopia. The realization uh, that the critical period is no longer valid, that these things can, can be remediated through at any age throughout life. There's another fabulous researcher, uh, Jan Richard Brunick out of Norway. He's doing tremendous research. He's got three new papers coming out in the next year, um, some imminently and probably at the end of this year. So he studies the extraocular muscles. Now, optometrists, this isn't just like well-established optometrists. Optometrists and ophthalmologists in school are basically taught that you have these muscles and they direct where the eyes point, okay? Brunick has now researched the fibers in those muscles. And they have found that these fibers, they exist two places in the human body, in the extraocular muscles and in the inner ear. And that they are actually responsible for transmitting data between the muscles and the brain at far greater levels than ever imagined. They didn't know these communications, these fine communications were going on. So when those muscles are cut for strabismus surgery, you are damaging those fibers. Mm -hmm. So it's the communication from the brain to the eye that is disrupted. It's not just a physical muscle thing that right. oh, we can go in and do surgery again to change. Mm -hmm. So that's a con connection that needs to be repaired. So through his work, it's substantiating um, some of the work that vision therapists have been doing, optometry has been doing for, for a long time, but it's also helping guide ophthalmology and stra strabismologists about how they are doing their surgery. Because yeah, sometimes surgery, they need to do surgery, but if they can change the methods which they're doing that surgery and where they cut, so that they're not damaging these, these fibers and there's sensory receptors in there as well that become damaged, then you're looking at potentially a far better outcome for those having strabismus surgery. So there's a lot of these just fascinating research advancements going on. And, and we do have to be a bit empathetic that it, it is hard to keep up with all these things, but Practitioners need to be on top of this research. It's happening very fast and it impacts the suggestions they're making to their patients. Sure. You know, oftentimes optometrists who provide vision therapy, 
are told, well, you have to tell your patients that surgery is an option. Ethically, you need to make sure that you're telling your patients all of the options and that surgery is included as an option. Mm -hmm. On the other side of the coin, though, the surgeons need to also be aware and be notifying their patients that there are therapeutic options available. Right. I think. Yes. Um, and it's, <laughs> it's this research, you know, that hopefully will guide those kind of changes. Right. Well, and I think that what we're hoping is that they will decide that they can talk to each other, you know, yeah. And that was the thing that Dr. Davies mentioned is that he actually has lunch with Dr. Peterson and they discuss things and they have a, a nice dialogue going back and forth. And that's why people like Melissa and I are able to have the result we do because we all work together. And the truth of the matter is it's easy to get caught up in kind of the either or the dichotomy of it. But what I've seen in my time in the profession is that there are a lot more of those collaborations going on than sometimes we assume or we feel. And it is inspiring. I know many, many optometrists, vision therapy providers who, who do have really good relationships, you know, with some ophthalmologists. And it does, it does need to go both ways. There's some awful, there's some awful relationships, <laughs> but that's true everywhere, right? Um, so I think we need to stay positive and, absolutely. and realize that it, it is happening. Uh, absolutely. Well, I think we could probably talk all night yeah. about all of these topics, but we need to, to wrap this up for today. Hopefully we can come back and address some questions later. I hope that uh, we can get some people who are listening to maybe suggest things they want to know, some questions they might have about this episode or even other episodes that I've shared so that we can know what types of things we can address in the future. You're doing a great job. The more places that we can reach people and help people find solutions and inspire them and support them, the more the better. I agree. Thank you so much for what you're doing. And I'm going to also link in the show notes. I'll include some information about the iHeartVT also so that people will be able to access all the links to all the things. I hope hopefully I'll get all the things in there that you mentioned today because you mentioned a lot so that there's resources for people that are looking for some answers. Great. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Denise. (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for listening to this episode of Healing Our Sight. If you liked this episode, please subscribe, add a review, and share it on your favorite social media. You can also ask questions or suggest a guest by visiting my Facebook page, Healing Our Sight, and more information is found on my website, HealingMySight.com. Thanks again for listening. Mm-hmm.